Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is an immense joy. The book, The Prize, was a classic. The Commanding Heights, a classic. And there have been a set of books along the way where late last year, it was instantly my uh, book of the year. The New Map is by Daniel Jurgen, IHS vice chairman. And we're thrilled we could get an oil update from Dr. Jurgen uh, right now on the triumph. Really wonderful, wonderful book to read on oil and the new map of our geopolitics. Dr. Jurgen, thank you so much for joining. You talk late in your book about the disrupted future. It's $70 a barrel, up from $45 a barrel when your book was released. What does the disrupted future of oil look like? Thank you, Tom, and uh, glad to be with you. And I have to say thank you for making the new map of the Bloomberg Surveillance Book of the Year. And it did, the book does talk about disruption and what we're seeing now. I think we're moving, we're in the post-pandemic economy right now. And uh, after all of the obituaries and everything were written for commodities, for oil, you're seeing a rebound and it's telling you that we're in a very, in a strong world economy. We're probably, in our numbers, going to be looking at a 6% global economic growth this year. That will bleed into demand. How do you frame the price of oil up? Are we here or do you go to $80 a barrel as we've heard from technicians? Or can Daniel Jurgen speak of $100 a barrel? Well, I think $100 a barrel would have to be some really big disruption. I think we've been thinking that we're in a 60 to $75 range. It could touch 80, but we're still using around 70 as the price for the year, which is where we happen to be right now. And it's uh, as the economies open up around the world, motorists on the road preferring to drive in, in places, and uh, the OPEC countries and the OPEC plus countries putting oil back in the market. And even the prospect of Iran coming back into the market fairly soon, if there is finally a new nuclear agreement, still hasn't riled the market. Well, there's this idea of discipline that a lot of the oil producers have regained discipline and are not going to overproduce for fear of cannibalizing from their future profits. At what point does the shale complex come back on, see higher prices as something they just can't miss and, and perhaps uh, enhance their production? That's a question, obviously, not only for shale producers, but the, that OPEC Plus are looking at pretty carefully. I think we're going to see at this point the shale producers are returning capital uh, to investors. That's what their focus is on right now. And uh, the increase in rig count that we see is among private operators, not the major companies. So I think we will see, obviously, this second half of the year, we'll see U.S. oil production starting to go up again, but I think at a modest rate. And I think there is a new social contract between the shale producers and their investors. And that does mean that maintaining a certain discipline and not going for growth at any cost. Hold on a second. Can you elaborate what this social contract is? Does it have to do with climate change or does it have to do with the idea that their debt, that their equity has been whipsawed by the different price action in oil and that investors don't want to see that again? It is your second option. It's about money and that uh, many shale producers were uh, spending beyond their cash flow. Now they've turned around. Some have dividends or sort of variable di dividends. They're paying down debt. That's been their focus, that they have to show to investors that they will be prudent managers. And that comes with consolidation, 
We used to follow uh, at IHS market 60 shale companies as consolidation <clears throat> proceeds as some companies disappeared. Yeah. We're down really getting closer to 20. Dan, it would be rude if we did not ask and let us go back from mobile to Exxon to ESSO. You and I remember ESSO and the roll-ups there of different hydrocarbon gasoline companies across this nation. ESSO and climate change, what does it mean that the climate change activists have assaulted the board of directors of Exxon? What does it symbolize? Well, I think, I think if you read the documents, it was not only climate change, it was an argument about how the company has been spending money about investment. And I think that's been kind of lost Tom, to some degree, in the, in the focus about uh, the climate. I think all companies are getting on board about uh, uh, kind of net zero uh, carbon by 2050, which has become uh, almost the, the rule book. And that's what uh, U.S. and other countries are going to seek to put into place in a much stronger way when they have their next U.N. meeting in Glasgow in November. But I think that what we've seen about uh, the board of directors at ExxonMobil is also it's a question about strategy, about where you invest, and obviously climate change has been part of it, but that's not the only thing. Daniel, when do we get peak oil? Ah, sometime I, I think we'll, someday we'll have peak conversation about peak oil, I think. <laughs> uh, in, in the new map, I, you know, I take the view that it's probably around 2030. We're gonna see strong demand uh, right now. That's what we're seeing. Uh, demand increasing 7 million barrels a day from the first quarter the third quarter. So I think, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this in terms of the new map, and, but I, I think around 2030 is when demand really starts to peak. I mean, this year we're selling about 3% of the new cars in the U.S. are electric cars. Fuel efficiency has a big impact, but recovery in the world, if we have a strong uh, recovery, that's going to propel demand. So I would still use around 2030 as the uh, expectation. Eight years away. Thank you, sir. Always appreciate your perspective. You. IHS Market, Vice Chairman. Right now, there is no one like Douglas Cass joining us from Seabreeze. And Doug, I loved, loved, love your note yesterday afternoon, which is where is the uproar that we've all become hourly traders? I mean, how do we extricate ourselves from this, a wise one? First, let me say that I love following Jack Ablam in the morning. Uh, he texted me that he's watching. And all I would say is that Jack Ablin has one of the best long games in the investment business. Well, but his short game in golf is a totally different it, story. It's a disaster. It's like embarrassing. And I know the reason you only play golf with him is because yeah. he's that bad. But right. seriously, uh, on, Doug. On the market, I, I quoted uh, a wrestling icon, Rowdy Roddy Piper, there you yesterday. Go. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm out of bubble gum. Uh, I'm reasonably convinced that the market's upside reward is dwarfed by the downside risk. It doesn't mean that the market's going to fade immediately, but all the signs are there. Um, valuations, investor expectations are really inflated. Speculation has run amok, as you just described, with the discussion of the AMC. But are they compartmentalized, Mr. Cass, or do you lump it all together? Ablin said that, you know, it's a little ambivalent right now where we where we are. But do you lump it all together, or is uh, AMC discreet? I, yeah, I lumped it all together. I, I see it as endemic um, to what's going on in the market. Um, the artificiality, the absence of natural price discovery, 
created by obviously zero interest rate policy. It's become, Paul and Tom, so conspicuous that it can't be ignored uh, by any investor that requires a margin of safety when they invest. All right, Doug, I appreciate a Rowdy Roddy Piper reference as much as the next person, but I also note in your most recent note that you are not yet net short. What would get you to become net short? Yeah, I'm respectful of the market's momentum, uh, which we all know is fueled, as I said, in large measure because of the liquidity from fiscal monetary policy. I think it's important that we recognize that tops are processes. I think we're making an important top. Uh, Bottoms, by contrast, are more typically events. And bull markets are typically born out of bad news. If you consider March 2009, the generational low in equities, which I described, or March 2020, um, at both junctures, I got really bullish. It doesn't pay to be dogmatic, neither a perma bull nor perma bear VI. And, um, uh, you know, in fact, if you remember our conversations on surveillance throughout 2020, I called for a rip-your-face rally and mother of all short squeezes, which we've had. But bear markets are born out of good news. If you consider early 2000, the fall of 2007, and maybe even June 2021, it happens when demand for stocks is sated. It happens when you have a promotional CEO of a company like AMC, where there's tremendous misallocation of capital, um, and there's play money on steroids. Um, and you have someone, by contrast, Mudrick from Mudrick Capital, who yep. becomes the smartest man in the room <laughs> and, and plays Reddit and Wall Street Bets and David Portnoy um, to a fairly well and makes $30 million as um, an hourly trader, not a day trader, to reference your question about day, you know, whether we're all day traders now. Um, so when stocks are cheap, I buy them. When they're expensive, we short. I'm starting up a hedge fund this week, Seabreeze uh, Capital Partners LP, to take advantage of what I think are, uh, in certain cases, ludicrously valued prices. Classic long um, short. What's what are you doing? Black yeah, box classic, long short. Long short. Most long short guys are, you know, 95 percent are long biased. I run a long short book with a short bias. Uh, what I do during my days is analyze companies. I'm not looking at the forums and Reddit and Wall Street bets. Hopefully, I'm producing an intelligent judgment of value. How will you is, apply leverage? I don't apply. I never use leverage. Mm, I try to go. create excess returns alpha by superior stock selection. The bottom line is that I, I feel a lot of people today are ignoring the fact that the S&P has doubled since the March lows. I think looking at the rearview mirror is not the fountain for delivering superior returns. To me, buying here is like drinking contaminated water. Mm. So I'm not yet short, Paul. Yep. I have one step out the door, <laughs> and I hope that my hedge fund launches timely from the standpoint of uh, setting up uh, shorts. But as I look at the major, and I'd be happy to go through most of them very quickly, as I look at uh, most asset classes, most market sectors and individual stocks, right. I'm pretty ursine. Is, is Doug... Is the catalyst for a market contraction, in your mind, the Fed stepping in here and tapering, if not start talking about raising rates? I'm different than everyone else. I listened to Laura earlier on Bloomberg TV. Um, I listened to your other guests who are all smart. Um, I just think it happens. Let's look, for example, of the disgorging in SPACs. There were 300 SPACs. 
they raised $120 billion late 2020 and early 2021. How fast was that craze over? It was over as fast as Frazier as uh, <laughs> Frazier hitting a walk-off uh, yep. um, home run last night at the bottom of the 11th. Or as, or as John Sterling said, Tom, oh, did we need that? <laughs> yeah, okay, well, just because uh, so it's yeah. So I see a broader disgorgement ahead. Right. Not only, not only for the, uh, Tampa Bay, but for the market. Yeah. Doug Cast, i got to switch gears here on the raging debate that we're having and everybody else is on the new baseball. I'm a huge fan, frankly, of the new game. And I go back to a pitcher who was in the Baseball Hall of Fame by the time he was 36 years old and pitched from a higher mound. Would Sandy Koufax complain about lowering the mound right now to make things work? Um, Sandy's giddy about his investment portfolio, and I don't think he would be concerned about um, the difference in the mound. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel so. I mean, you and I remember these guys were fearsome. They were up way high. Bob Gibson, Juan Marichal, yeah. and the rest of them, and they brought it well, in. Well, that's and, why all the games. You know, that's why Sandy's games were two to one. Um, you know, the Yankees, by the way, getting back to baseball, uncharacteristically have yeah. scored two or less runs in nine of the last 13 games. The last time that happened was 1971. Aaron Boone, the manager, wasn't alive, okay. and I think Brian was four <laughs> years old. I got time for one last question. It's a really, really important question because you're living at Doug Cass. The rest of us are up here in the snow. You're living at large in Florida. Are Tampa Bay, the San Diego Padres, the L.A. Dodgers, and the San Francisco Giants doing so well because the players want to play in that perfect weather? <laughs> no. No, it's it's you're a Red Sox fan for God's sake. You know it's early in the season. Talk to me in August. Got that right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Go away, Doug Cass. Good luck with your uh, new long short escapade here. Uh, yeah. That will be interesting. No leverage. That's interesting. no leverage. That's yep. really important yep. for those of you that aren't sophisticates on this. That's a really important uh, uh, statement by Mr. Cass. Yeah, I think he's just a strict long short. It sounds like a bottoms up. Doug Cass. Uh, I'm a stock selector, and that's going to generate yeah. my alpha. I, I can't remember the paper, but really mathy, really sophisticated. Twenty five years ago, said if you go over two point three eight times leverage, bad things happen. That was right. where the math yep. laid out. And cast goes the other way with no uh, leverage. That was enough baseball talk. Right now on inflation, which he does link into Washington, Gregory, Gregory Vallier joins us with uh, AGF Investments. His morning note is a must read in all of Washington. I really can't say enough uh, about it. I, I want to go back to whip inflation now. Uh, Greg yeah. Vallier, and I don't know if we're going to have a, a redo of that here uh, with the bout of inflation, but I would suggest inflation is treated differently by the GOP or by the Democrats. Discuss that. Well, uh, first of all, I'm old enough, Tom, to remember the 70s when inflation did tremendous damage to Jimmy Carter's presidency. And I do think it's a real vulnerability for Joe Biden. You know, we all talk about the impact at the Fed or the markets, but there's a big political impact. You see a, an extreme shortage of meat. You see gasoline prices higher. Mm -hmm. You see a really acute shortage of labor. And, and you see housing prices on fire. And I think a lot of consumers will look at this stuff intend to blame the incumbent president. $71 a barrel on brand. Explain here the politics of a gallon of gas. 
Well, it's visceral. People see it uh, so clearly when they fill their tank. They see the price of meat. Uh, there's a story in the Washington Post this morning about a house in the D.C. suburbs that went for $1 million above the asking price. So everywhere you look, you, you see signs of it. And the Republicans who have been desperate for issues that will give them traction may have an issue. Greg, what are the politics of higher wages? Well, that that as well. I think that when you see stories, Lisa, like the Bank of America paying $25 an hour, when you see a, a stories about bidding wars by companies, uh, people are saying, I've got to pay all these higher prices. I need higher wages. And I think that's the big issue for the Fed. It's not corn or copper. It's wages. All right. Well, this really raises a question because uh, inflation has been highly political. And the way that we normally talk about it is that Republicans have been raising the issue of inflation to push back on some of Joe Biden's plans. But you're saying that the here and now of inflation that we're seeing in commodity prices is already eroding confidence in some of the spending. Is that what you're saying or what you're hearing from the polls? Yes, I'm hearing, Lisa, that the Republicans who need issues, I mean, they can talk about urban crime and immigration, but they need more issues. And I think if they can say the reason why we've got high prices everywhere you look is because of the Biden spending binge. I'm not sure I believe that, by the way. I don't think Joe Biden's to blame for computer chips being in short supply. But the Republicans may try to link the two issues to Biden's detriment. Greg Villiers. West Virginia is such an original and interesting state. Here we have two senators with uncommon power. Explain the power of the senators from West Virginia, even as one meets with Biden today. Well, first of all, Tom, you start with the fact that it's among the most conservative states in the country. So Joe Manchin, a moderate Democrat, can't stray very far. Uh, Shelley Moore Caputo, who will be at the White House negotiating with the president, can't stray very much either. So I, I think, ironically, their state needs a lot of money for infrastructure, but I think they'd be reluctant to sign on to a plan that the Democrats support. That said, they're getting closer. Uh, late last week, the Republicans came close to $1 trillion. Biden's come down from $2.25 to $1.7 they're getting closer. I wouldn't be shocked to see a deal start to come into focus. Really? You, you, in, in you, the, yeah. you think they will defeat gridlock with this legislation? Yeah, it's not going to satisfy the progressive left. They're going to be very upset. And what, what Biden has to do is say, look, I'll take this now. We'll come back for more. Maybe the next bill will use budget reconciliation and shove it through Congress. But I think Biden needs a win. I think it gives him momentum. I, I think a deal is doable. All right. Well, he needs a win. Is he losing popularity among his own Democratic Party or is he actually gaining some clout as he actually moves toward accomplishing something? Well, two points quickly. Number one, his his overall numbers are pretty good. Even with Rasmussen, poll takers that are conservative, Biden's well into the 50s. Uh, Trump never got there. But among his own progressives, there's a growing suspicion that he may opt out of a very aggressive deal and go for something a little more modest. That worries the left. Greg, I just want to wrap up, uh, kind of taking a left turn here. We've been talking about the hacks coming out of Russia that have affected yeah. both meat processing and previously the Colonial Pipeline. And we've seen some pretty big kinks that have thrown into a supply chain that's already strained as a result of these hacks and these, uh, these uh, malware events. I'm wondering what the U.S. response you expect to be, whether it's against, China, against Russia or whether it's against uh, just creating a better barrier on a national level. 
Well, I'd say, Lisa, first of all, the meeting between Putin and Biden on June 16th is going to be pretty chilly. I don't expect any uh, big breakthrough. I think uh, Biden will threaten to retaliate. I think relations between the U.S. and Russia could get worse before they get better. Greg, got to leave it there. Greg Van Yeer of AGF. Laura Rame joins us now with FF's Investments. She is definitive on foreign exchanges and has taken that over as chief U.S. economist at FS Investments. Laura, I love, love, love your research note where you say, here's one of the fears. I want you to talk right now about the fear everybody has, a quote-unquote policy mistake. What can Jerome Powell get wrong? So, unfortunately, I think that there's a lot that can go wrong at this stage. And, you know, I feel like everybody always labels me as the pessimist, but what's the point in another person telling us the economy is strong, right? We got to look at what could possibly go wrong here and what has caused the end of every expansion that we've had. It's been either rates going up too fast or inter-business inter cycle we've had miscommunication that has sparked significant volatility. So I think that's an area where the Fed is trying to be much more regimented, but let's face it, they haven't really started the tough discussion, which is how are they gonna remove this policy accommodation and what it's gonna mean at a time when the economy is already facing other constraints. If they have to move, Laura, do they move with a Greenspanian measured approach, quarter point, quarter point, quarter point, or do they got to go back to Burns and make some real jumps or at least one jump condition to get back to something that's in the textbooks? You know, I think they're going to be extremely cautious. This is, of course, what they've said. And yet markets are forward looking. So, you know, we've seen markets before get ahead of themselves as far as, um, con you know, concerns about speed, concerns about reaction to the inflation, the mini cycle of inflation that we're going to start seeing really evolve after we get this technical glitch out of the way of, you know, year on year higher inflation. So what we really need to think about is um, the fact that the Fed has boxed themselves in with getting markets so addicted to this strong liquidity. And 2022 is going to be a year of deceleration. The economy is going to be strong, but it's going to be growing slower. Earnings may well be solid, but they're going to be growing slower. How is the Fed going to start removing quantitative easing in a place that's already uncomfortable? For markets. Well, before we get to the reaction function, there's also a question, Laura, of where we are right now in this cycle, both the economic and the labor cycle. And people are talking about mid-cycle. Some people are saying late cycle. Even Jim Bullard saying that perhaps the labor market is tighter than it seems. Where do you fall in this debate? I, I'm firmly in the mid-cycle camp, and I would I would argue that what we're seeing in the labor market shows constraints that are deeply underappreciated. Um, when he says that they're tight, I recognize that, you know, we're dealing with this labor supply mismatch. People still can't, they're tight because people are having to pay more for workers. But the labor market is the most inefficient market that we have, maybe except for real estate. And the fact that we've had significant labor migration, the fact that we've had some industries requiring much less labor, whereas others are requiring significantly more the pivot that our economy has made towards goods production and manufacturing, a lot of these things 
are you can't just press a button and wake all these workers back up again, especially the you know labor force participation having fallen. I think it's going to be harder to resolve a lot of this than other people think. So what's your view that basically the Fed is doing the right thing and staying on hold and that they ought to and that inflation is not going to surprise to the upside the way that some people think? I think they're going to have a lot of trouble with the fact that I think the labor market gets much stickier, much harder to improve from here. And inflation is going to be uncomfortably high. And no matter what they say, it's going to continue to be a hot button issue for markets. It's going to continue to cause these sort of bouts of volatility. And the Fed is going to really have trouble talking out of both sides of their mouth on this one. Laura, I want to dovetail your economic work at FF's Investments with the lore of Laura Rame in the foreign exchange market. How do you interpret dollar dynamics now around the next six months of the American economy? So, so much strength has been priced in for growth. I actually think that this could be a place where the dollar weakens further from here. What are we going to do? You know, we we see the fact that um, our economy is going to modestly decelerate from such a strong level. So with so much good news already priced in, I think we're seeing real rates continue to slide. I think there's a strong argument to be made that the tenure actually falls a little bit from here. Um, All of that against the backdrop of still positive news, possible upside surprises possible in the rest of the world. It's been amazing that Asia's had so much struggle to really reopen and get themselves fully back online. I think there's a lot of room for that to go better. Finally, we really need that. Um, And for the yuan to continue to appreciate as well. So I think all of those things speak to a dollar negative outlook from here. But again, this goes back to classic demand pull cost push debate about inflation. I don't want to go all 1960s on you. But if we have a Pacific Rim resurgence, that has to help aggregate demand worldwide. And that's where the gloom fades away, right? Yes, of course, to some degree. But... I think what we've seen in the U.S. is that we can't sustain these strong growth rates for long. I mean, all this time, our trade deficit's incredibly wide. We've been sucking in goods from the rest of the world this whole time. I think what growth they've had has really been already significantly helped by the U.S. consumer, which once again is kind of the the engine driving not just U.S. growth, but global growth as well. So I think what we really, I think the story of the next six months is a story of business investment. Of course, you know, I heard your infrastructure conversation with the last guest, so interesting. I think how that plays out is going to be important. But I think as far as consumer goods go, uh, we're going to now pivot to a lot of business investment stories. And for that, um, you know, I think it's more closing the gap of demand, of uh, unfulfilled demand than it is a fresh leg up. Yeah. We're speaking with Laura Rame of FS Investments on this moment of a lack of conviction when it comes to the outlook, an idiosyncratic moment, unprecedented in economic history. And John was just talking about the word out of Caterpillar, the idea that they are seeing some easing in the supply of goods that they use to manufacture their objects. Meanwhile, you've got Elon Musk on the other side of things tweeting this morning. Our biggest challenge is supply chain, especially microcontroller chips. Never seen anything like it. He indicated that this was 
is obviously temporary. Do you agree or do you think that supply chain kinks will become a feature of the post-pandemic economy? I, I think they'll resolve eventually, but the real, I think, question is if it will change behavior going forward. Will we start bringing some of this manufacturing back to the U.S.? We've been running so thin on inventories for decades. We've been eroding those inventories. Will companies start stockpiling more? Obviously, you know, that would give us some near-term boost in GDP, but, um, you know, that would just sort of front load that consumption, that business investment. So, you know, that to me is the real issue. Do we sort of change, uh, does it change long-run behavior of how companies had their supply chains to be less vulnerable to this kind of disruption? I know I sure would. Laura Rain, got to run. FS Investments Chief. U.S. economist on the latest situation and the mismatch between demand and supply. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.